first of all, is First Timothy 2, 2. Then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. For kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This prayer for the rulers so that we can lead a tranquil life is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for us all the testimony given at the proper time. This is why I'm here. Paul says this is for this ministry. I was appointed. So you, in, in that passage, I just hope you understand in first Timothy chapter two, verses one through seven, you have the whole thing about human government, uh, about how we relate by prayer about the gospel ministry. That is the reason, in my opinion, for us to be interested in human government is that we're on a mission and the mission requires communication. And when communication gets stymied or shut down, the mission becomes more challenging. It takes more resources. It's harder. Hey, we're, we're people of ingenuity and industry. We're Americans. We invent things and we make better ways to do things. And so we, uh, we, we don't just carry things. We get a wheelbarrow and we put it in the wheelbarrow and that that's got a wheel and it's got all kinds of, of benefits above just carrying something and hurting your back. You can carry more weight and the same back pain can get more done. <laughs> so we've got all this, this tech that we've developed for communications. We have people online this morning fellowshipping with us from a distance, some in quarantine, some uh, from a distance that uh, they don't have a helicopter or supersonic travel. So they're, they're going to be at home down in Texas or somewhere with people fellowshipping with us. Uh, and we're using the tech. And as government gets more restrictive on communications and historically it has, it will, there are places you don't want to go today with your Bible in your hand through the, through customs. If you show up in uh, the Indonesian airports, you definitely are there as a student or something. You're not there as a missionary. You're there as a secret missionary. What I'm saying is um, it's easy here. It's so easy to live a quiet and tranquil life. And so be about God's work because he's not willing that any should perish in our passage. It's easy now. It could get harder. But uh, so relevant to our time is that Paul takes... I mean, the Neronian persecution of Christians was a real and present problem in Paul's day. Nero and the, the Caesars and the, the Romans opposed to the nascent church. It was a real problem in Paul's day. It's not a problem for us right now. But even in that trouble, Paul's on mission. He's focused on the work, which is the ministry of the gospel. Uh, so that many could come to know Jesus Christ as their savior. Is this thing muted? Yeah, it's coming back on. Yeah. So we're moving forward in Paul's teaching on how Timothy needs to go and arrange things in Ephesus to the order of the local assembly. And it covers a great deal of the book of first Timothy, especially what's left of chapter two, and uh, chapter three, I apologize. Young people, if you're headed to children's church, let's let the young people go. I forgot to holler at them. <clears throat> the order of the local assembly in first Timothy 
uh, chapter 2, verses 8, really, through chapter 3, um, 16. We're not going to cover all that today. But we will get finished with chapter 2. At least that's my goal. And today, if you thought the way the Christians relate to human government is a tricky topic, now we're talking about the role of men and women in the local assembly in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And I want to, first of all, I'm talking to people that have probably read through this dozens of times. It's pretty straightforward in the English text. I'm going to show you the Greek, uh, my translation, and, and explain it here and there where there are significant uh, helpful insights from the language. But as we start out, I just want you to understand the Bible is a consistent unit. God's revelation to man is from Genesis through the book of Revelation, one uh, continuous message of God's love for us. And it tells us a couple of, well, three really important things that will organize everything about our lives. It tells us who God is and so what he's like. And you can ask that question, what's God like? And you open the scriptures and you find the answer there like you can't find it anywhere else. But it also says something else, and often it's very challenging, sometimes offensive to our sense of pride and our sinful arrogance. It tells us who we are. What am I? What am I here for? What is my life about? Who is God? Who am I? And you know, the third thing, you put them together. The Bible is not just about God and his works, and it's not certainly just about me and who I am. It's about God and his works and how he's going to deal with us forever and ever. What is God going to do with us is the question the Bible answers ultimately. Who is God? Who am I? And what is God going to do with us? These are three really important summary questions that you and I need to be able to answer to a world that doesn't really have any answers. The government people, the media people working with the government people, they have answers, but they're not really answers. Curses the man who trusteth in man. We don't depend on the strength of the horse. We depend on the might of God. And so um, as I start, I just want you to understand what the scriptures teaches is a consistent whole. And so, I mean, W-H-O-L-E, a consistent entirety. And so when the scriptures tell you what you are and what you are for, you have basically two choices you can do with that. You can say, um, yes. God, I am what you made me to be. Or you can, as our culture more and more wants to do, say, no, I resist what I am. But here's the interesting thing. Your choice doesn't really change the fact that you are what God makes you. And, that, and that's helpful. What, what am I talking about? You're God's image bearer. You were made in God's image to represent him. In fact, the original design of mankind is that he made you in his image to rule over his works. That's right. Mankind was designed from the factory by the creator from eternity past to rule over the works of God. But wait a second. We're not ruling over his works. We're doing a horrible job of it. God's in control, but then you've got Bible. that says Satan is the ruler of this present darkness and the ruler of this world. And what are we talking about? I'm saying, look at the Bible as an entirety. God made man to rule over his works. Man disobeyed God and submitted himself to the creature, to the serpent, dwelled by Satan. And now we find ourselves in a pickle 
But the Bible is the story of how God resolves that. And we end up in the new heavens and new earth with the Father making his abode with mankind and God the Son in the humanity of Jesus Christ, God the Son, Jesus ruling over the kingdom that has been promised forever and ever and ever and ever. And that kingdom is described very explicitly in the Old and New Testaments as a kingdom of righteousness and peace with the bride of Jesus Christ ruling with him. Don't you know, Paul says to the Corinthians, you will judge the angels, you believers in Christ. Not today, but it's coming. There's coming a time when we will be in a, a restored to an ascendancy of rulership. And I think that so much of what the Bible teaches beyond believe in Christ as your savior and receive eternal life. Well, then what? It's setting you up for the eternal state. What about Israel? It's a Jewish kingdom over the nations. It will be in the new heavens, in the, in the coming kingdom and what we call the millennium. But then in the new heavens and new earth, it's Jesus with the church and under Christ over Israel, over the nations. That's the nature of the case. You say, wait a second. The church is going to rule over Israel. Where'd you get that? I got it from Jesus. And I read it in Matthew chapter 19, the last paragraph, and you can read it too. You who've left everything for me, you will sit on 12 thrones ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. And who is he talking to? The disciples who become the apostles who found the church. We are very tied, connected, tied together with all the destiny of Jesus Christ. And that is our, that is our future. We are designed to rule with Christ. I just want to give you the big picture so that you can zoom in and say, if you forfeit your position as what God made you, Ladies, if you buck against what God says you are and what you're for, then you're denying his right to say all that he wants to say about what he wants to do with you. And I recommend never doing this. Never join the world and say, well, I'm less and he's more, so I don't like that. So I'm going to try to be what he is. Don't ever join the world in the satanic deception of saying what God made me to be and tells me to be is less than I could be. It's always a lie. It's always a lie. So with that, let's get into the order of the assembly in first Timothy beginning in verse uh, chapter two, verse eight. Therefore I want Bulamai, a synonym to fellow wanting, desiring. I want, this is what I desire for the men to pray in every place. This means all assemblies of believers, which is an interesting thing because we, we have this idea that in every town there's a single local church. But I think there are many assemblies as the church grows, kind of like we see today. So be careful about assuming that every time Paul writes a letter, that it's to one group. In fact, some of the letters indicate that they're being circulated. Uh, you guys read the letter from Laodicea, the Laodicea the, and, and, and let, let them read your letter. Be careful about making assumptions about um, one local place for how you understand your ecclesiology. But this w is one thing for sure. The men are to pray in every place. And then let's check our cultural expectations from the time in which we live. And let's go back 2000 years to what Paul is saying to hear what he's saying without bringing our baggage into it. And here the next clause, he says, lifting up holy hands. This is not a hand raising church. We don't tell anybody not to raise hands. I'm just an outside observer saying y'all don't do it. 
the hand raising, the hand raising. Again, I said, let's let the contemporary charismatic Christian culture that's influenced the whole evangelical movement, let's let that aside and actually talk about what's happening here. This is Old Testament to early church prayer, and there's not a thing about appealing to some heavy emotional experience. That's not about what's happening at all. It is a recognition that God is above all, and it is how we would pray. And there's zero charismatic uh, influence, hyper-emotionalism. There's none of that in what he's saying. But it is exactly what God says to Israel. Do not lift your hands to me with blood on them. Your hands are dirty and you're holding them up to me in prayer, but you're sinful and you need to be clean before you come to me in prayer. This is what uh, James talks about, lifting up holy hands, lifting up clean hands without defilement. Lift your hands, you sinners. So when you hold your hands up to God, what is often stated in the Bible is that they better be clean. In other words, you better be uh, cleansed from your sin as you go into the presence of God. It's kind of like when I was a kid, if you come to the dinner table and your parents say, okay, let's see them. And you show your hands because you've been outside doing very important work with mud and tools. And they look at your hands and they say, uh-uh, go back and work on that again. You're not welcome at the table because that's filthy and we're learning to be clean. Glad I happened to be, have done some maintenance today because I can actually, no, no, nothing, nothing. Um, so, so the idea is that to be in God's presence, you need to be clean. And so we're lifting up purified, holy, righteous hands to God in prayer. And so this is an idea of the men assembling with the, with the church family and, and someone standing up to lead the family in prayer. Okay. Uh, there was a great movie I really enjoyed. Uh, that was a sequel to, uh, the killer angels called gods and generals. And it was about, um, uh, the, the stuff prior to Gettysburg killer angels was a great, uh, historical fiction account of Gettysburg. And, and then they, they made the prequel to it called Gods and Generals about mainly about uh, Thomas Jackson, Thomas Jonathan Jackson. Uh, they call him Stonewall Jackson, uh, Virginia um, uh, general. And uh, he was probably the way we think of evangelical or Bible believing today. He's probably the most, uh, one of the most Bible believing overt outward with his faith. Go tell everybody about Jesus people in the entire American civil war. And, um, and there's a scene that has him doing exactly this, where he's just with God by himself in a field and he's calling on the name of the Lord and he's doing the Old Testament style or early church prayer style. Now there's so much baggage today with this that people, if you see someone with their hands above this level, you're like, uh oh, what, uh, what, what kind of Christian are they? And um, even Tim Hawkins will talk about the different, ha different kinds of handholds. Now he's a, he's a hand raising church guy. So he's got, you know, the carry the new TV guy uh, method of holding hands. And you've got the, the, you know, some people wave hands like this when they're singing. None of that is what we're talking about here. We're talking about leading in prayer. Okay. And there's nothing wrong with it. If you ever see someone raising their eyes to, get to heaven and, and opening their hands in prayer to God, you're, you might be uh, watching someone who knows the scriptures. So understand it's not something that you want to look at culturally so much as scripturally. Stephen is definitely in his prayer to the Lord Jesus looking to heaven and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the father as he says, Lord Jesus, forgive them. So, um, 
You don't have to close your eyes, bow your head. You don't have to get on your knees and pray in a, in a, in a supplicatory position, but you do need to humble yourself in your heart before God in whatever posture you pray. And this is the big point I want to make as we kind of shut this part down. It doesn't really matter the posture. It matters the prayer. He's talking about prayer. Now, notice he doesn't say, I want every man, I want, I want people to pray uh, in petition or in intercession or in thanksgiving. He's already said that. But he's saying, as you pray, as you lead in prayer, I want the men to do this. And this, this is interesting, without wrath and dispute. See, that's what makes for holy hands, is that we're not unclean with regard to one another. And the men, if we'll lead, if we'll be good examples of love suffers long, 1 Corinthians 13, of love doesn't count a wrong suffered right? If we'll be good examples of the forgiveness that Jesus requires of us, if, if uh, forgive us our sins as we've forgiven the sins of others, if we're careful about being attuned to the heart of God about one another, then uh, the family will have an example, will be this way. And I try, believers, I try to be this way with you and with, with all people. And I, I think you try to be this way too. I think you are seeking God's grace and how you deal with other people. And yes, we have standards and expectations and responsibilities. We are called upon by God to make judgments, but we're never to be self-righteous. We're always to be broken and humble before God and never assuming that we've achieved humility. That's the nature of the responsibility. So we lift up holy hands without wrath and dispute as we pray to our God. Believers, if you have sin in your life, you are not capable of lifting holy hands. You are not going before God undefiled. If you have sin, personal sin in your life, you, it doesn't work. And that's why we're told in an extensive discourse by the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1, that if you want to enjoy fellowship with God, then you're going to walk in the light. That's God's righteousness as he himself is in the light. You're going to walk in the character of God that reveals God. If you're going to have fellowship with God and personal sin is going to shut that down. And that's why in first John chapter one, he tells you that if you say you have no sin, you lie and the truth is in you. If you say you have not sinned, then you make God a liar and his word is not in you. But if we confess our sins, that's to tell the truth, to name our sins to God, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. And then cleanse us, clean us up, purify us from all unrighteousness, all defilement of any sin. That's, that's, that's the thing. When you become aware of personal sin, don't, don't lie about it. When someone confronts you with sin, don't immediately do the knee jerk reaction. No, I'm righteous. No, I'm good. Look at yourself. First Corinthians 11, self-assess. And if you see defilement, if you see on your hands, there's some muck, wash it off. Go to the laver and it's the blood of Christ in 1 John chapter 1 that goes on cleansing us from all sin. That's not a passage for unbelievers. That is a passage for believers in Jesus Christ. And that's why the Apostle John, who I hope you all understand, is a Christian, is a believer, sealed unto the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit, that the Apostle John says, we, if we confess our sins. Believers... I want you to make this as far as my shepherding connects to you and any kind of uh, ob obligation, if you will, or any, any influence I might have. I want you to do this daily. 
If the Lord's Prayer is a model that the disciples were to pray daily, and maybe give us today the bread we need for today. If it's a daily thing, then there's a confession of sin clause in there. Forgive us our sins. So I challenge you to make that self-assessment. Because here's the thing, the people around you probably know what you may not about your thing where, where your head is wrong where you're thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think or some other jealousy or envy or bitterness or strife or something. And it shuts down your prayer life. And I, I really wanted to spend some time on verse eight because that's all we have on the men. <laughs> and now it's the women, their conduct in the assembly. Does anybody have braided hair today? Anyone? Cause we want to point you out and make you stand up and, and uh, how about, how about jewelry? I see some jewelry there. We've got some jewelry. And uh, it's, this is really tragic. Some of you are really dressed in, uh, very, in very lovely raiment. Your garments are, are very nice, and you've dressed nicely uh, today. And I want to tell you that you've really messed up because the Apostle Paul <laughs> is about to tell you that you're supposed to show up uh, with a freshly scrubbed face, you know, just to totally ghosted and um, your hair all in disarray and never wear any jewelry. And please, um, if you could find a potato sack, that would be, that would be the best. Obviously, that's not what he's going to say, but he is going to tell us that what matters is not the externals. Let's, let's be Christians. Let's have some depth in our spirit about the truth of God's word and it taking root in us. It's not the externals of our of our bodies. It's the inner person as Peter will say, and that inner person drives us to do the works that God has. So our adornment becomes our works. That's what Paul's going to tell the ladies. So the adornment of Christian women in first uh, Timothy two, nine, I hope everybody's good with modesty. I'm looking around. It's uh, it's, it seems like y'all appreciate modesty. Um, it's, it's a blessing that you are giving to the men, whether you know it or not, ladies, that you are dressing in modest uh, attire. It's, there's a lot involved in uh, this question of adornment. But in verse nine, in the same way also, so the same topic, men, what you're to do in the assembly, and now women, what we want from you in the assembly is, seems like the end of the same way, what he's talking about, okay? Because he doesn't say women pray. He says, women, here's what, what you need to be wearing. And so it's a different instruction. Just understand it's a different instruction. By the way, it doesn't mean women don't pray in the assembly. That's 1 Corinthians 11. But they pray with their head covered. What is that? It's a demonstration in the first century that you're submissive to your husband. It's a demonstration of your honoring your husband as his wife. And so you're submissive, biblically submissive to him, as Paul says in Ephesians 5. Now you can have your head covered like physically and not submit to your husband. And in our culture, we don't demonstrate submission to husband. Listen to me carefully in this culture, at least today, Sharia could change that. But in this culture, we do not show submission to the husband with the covering of the hair. So how are you going to show it? Well, you, you have to do more to show it because we don't have a symbol, but that's the idea. The woman with her head covered is honoring God before the angels in 1 Corinthians 11 as she prays publicly or in the first century prophesies. So in the same way also, I want the women in modest apparel. Now I'm putting it in the Greek order. So here's the, the first characterization is they're in modest apparel. That means that it's not ostentatious. It's not, I'm here to be seen. I don't see anybody with, um, with a battery powered sweater with neon lights or something that, hey, I showed up. It's me. Congratulations, all y'all, as we would say down in Texas. 
um, you, you know, it's not ostentatious. You're not trying to be um, drawing attention to self in modest apparel with reverence and sound mindedness. This is a phrase Paul often uses for women. It's all through Titus, but he uses it for men too, but it's in the women specific conduct context. You get this concept of sound mindedness. My Bible in English and uh, the new American standard translates that word in verse nine um, discreetly. And I'm, I do a, a big face palm on that translation discreetly. Well, they're trying to figure out what sound mindedness means in the context of modest attire, but discreet is a little bit different than when you hear the man say sophrosune thinking soundly. It's driving to something that our culture doesn't necessarily honor, but it means to, and it should. If you watch the culture and what it serves up for women, it's all feelings. It is. The culture says you, you need to go watch daytime TV and feel something uh, insubstantial, unsubstantial. And what Paul says is that you, you women with your massive capacity to think need to engage that. We say it's the great fool who's a husband with a helpmeet and a wife who doesn't benefit from her intelligence and her insight. Right? That's, that's what we say because we've read Genesis chapter 2. The reverence and sound mindedness, it's a way of, uh, of addressing certainly your thought process attentive to what you're wearing, sound mindedness, to adorn themselves. So I want the women, and the main line of the sentence is to adorn themselves. Okay, you get it? I want the women to adorn themselves, but we know how in modest apparel with reverence and sound mindedness, they're thinking about this topic. Not, and here's what it shouldn't be with, not with braided hair or jewelry or pearls or expensive clothing. See, that's the, that's the, you know, wear a, um, a barrel or whatever to church. I mean, we need to cover up more than that. You know, a, a big sack of potato, potato sack or something to, to really uh, show how holy you are. It's just saying that it's not your adornment. You may be wearing something nice, but it's not your adornment. Do you see the difference? In other words, just like Paul told the women to be sound minded believers, we need to think. Think it through. Now in this day, in Paul's day, there's a problem in Ephesus. There's a lot of witchcraft in Ephesus. We've talked about that. There's a lot of worship of female deities. And when you have worship of female deities, you have a, a perverse exaltation of womanhood. Perverse, not God's exaltation of womanhood as his created helpmeet for, for her husband, but an exaltation of worship. That's a problem likely in Ephesus. Now, feminist theologians want to say that's the only context for reading these verses. And I say that's the historical setting which Paul is speaking, but he's talking about creation order in context, as I'll show you. Now, when he says not with braided hair or jewelry, it's important to know in the Roman culture, in the Roman uh, period, in, in, in this culture in the first century, there was a tendency, y'all are going to be really shocked by this. There was a tendency for women to try to copy what Caesar's wife was doing. It was called fashion. It's a thing I know y'all have never heard of where there are these people. I don't know. Let's call them influencers who will do their hair a certain way. And so or they wear a certain certain type of gown or certain cast of jewelry. And that becomes the thing that we all want to try to do. I know crazy, right? We've never seen anything like that. Now, of course, that's the way the world is. It's the way the world has been. And Paul says, I recommend you opt out. It's not what we're here for. Have you ever known someone that was, um, that was hung up on the, you know, that, did you have, 
Are your trousers pleated? What is this, 1996? They fit. They're functional. I'm dressed. I even pressed them. Leave me alone. Right? So, in other words, there is an emphasis problem in our culture, in all cultures, and we're worried about what we put on. Now, again, um, we tend to think, and this nature teaches you, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, we tend to think of women as more sitting in front of a vanity mirror than men, don't we? I mean, when I was a kid, there was a, in my, we had a built-in in the bathroom and uh, there was a, a place for a chair. I thought everybody had this. Uh, there was a place for a chair to sit under and then there was, uh, there was lights and, uh, and, and, and there was a mirror and lights above it. And then she had this other mirror that you could, you, you could flip it over as concave and you could see bigger, like all more detail. Anybody remember this? It's the seventies, eighties. Okay. And, um, and she would put on her makeup there. I remember um, that that was my mom's place where I had to sit in that chair as a kid. Um, that was uh, not my place. And so uh, it wasn't like a, a big prohibition or something. It was just like, that's not what we do. I go back and watch my dad groom himself, you know, comb his hair and shave or whatever. He had, for some reason, the, the Norelco electric would work perfectly on him. It would just get all of it, It'd get the neck and everything. I've never been able to accomplish that ever. All it does is tear me up and then I have to shave with something else on my neck. But I watched my dad and uh, totally different. He arranged himself function. You know, he, he put himself, he taught me what a gig line was. You know what a gig line is? It's where your, where your, your shirt uh, matches the, 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 your trousers where the line comes across and it's all lined up. Oh yeah. It's awesome. If you don't have it lined up, that's a gig. So you gotta, gotta get it right. So, so, I mean, we put ourselves together well, but it's just very different the way we are. Isn't that true? Isn't that how men and women are? No, no. You could say if some of you don't wear makeup, some of you do. Ladies who don't wear makeup, I promise you spend more time with your hair than we do. Thank you. I mean, that's the, we're, 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 we're thrilled. We want you to, to do that. And you want to do that. And in, in many cases, in most cases, all I'm trying to say is that there's a tendency in how we're made. I think that goes to this. And that's why Paul's addressing it is you want to keep this in balance. He's not telling women not to be women or girls. Pardon the expression, not to be girly. He's saying, that's not what we're here for. And so, see, this, this is actually counter to the feminist argument that the Bible is anti-woman. The Bible knows women, God knows women, and he says, this is really what you need to attend to. This is what you need to be focused on, given your womanly tendencies. In other words, the Bible highlights your capacity to think. Sometimes I get a, a, a blessed criticism a beloved uh, saint will tell me, I have no idea what you're talking about up there. You get up there and I just don't know what you're talking about. And I think um, we all need to drink water. And I think that, um, well, some people aren't going to concentrate. And maybe my voice is just not, it's not going to be the voice that someone will hear. But my other thought is you could never, oh, well, we really need to make this much less content always that you could if you wanted to if you chose to you could i believe that and that's the that's the difference in philosophy of ministry here we really think highly of you we think you're capable of digging in and sinking down to what god has for you and so i will try to expose the scriptures with some depth 
So women are called to a, d- a deeper thought, a deeper Christian life. But with what is proper, this is the next clause in verse 10, with what is proper for women who are making a claim to godliness. The word godliness is um, a word we shouldn't assume we know what it means. In your culture, people mean being a good girl. That's godly. But that's not what it means. Uh, The word is uh, theosabaya. And it's two words that are jammed together as Greek will often do. Theos is God. Sabaya is uh, appropriate worship. It's devotion of life. So I would say better to translate this devotion to God than say godliness, because who knows what we mean by godly? Oh, that guy's really godly. That's really not much of a compliment in our day because people don't know what that means. We think it means self-righteous or something. Godly means worshipful of God, devout to him, devoted to him. And so this is the, the thing, ladies. You are making a claim to godliness by means of good works. That's your adornment. Let me put the whole thing together so you can see it. It's one sentence. In the same way, also, I want the women in modest apparel with reverence and sound-mindedness to adorn themselves, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothing, but what is proper for women who are making a claim to godliness by means of good works. That's the, the thought. And it's an easy thought for us to grasp. What identifies you? It needs to be your works. That's the whole thing. That's it. I think of the lady, Mary, who, uh, who uh, anointed Jesus for his burial. The room filled with a beautiful perfume smell as she was anointing his head and washing his feet with her tears and her hair. The, the room fills with a beautiful smell from this nard, this very expensive perfume. And the disciples wrinkle up their noses in disdain. It's the opposite expression you would have, right, from a beautiful smell. But they're, they're in disdain because she has wasted this. We could have sold the nard and given it to the poor, given the money to the poor. And it says Judas was saying that because he had kept the, the, the money box. He didn't really want to give it to the poor. And Jesus didn't address Judas's issue there. He addressed what Judas was saying was the issue that we could have given to the poor. He said, you always have the poor with you. You don't always have me with me, me with you. She's done a good work. I don't know any much of what this lady said. We have a few snippets of her quotes, very little idea of what she looks like or what she wore in the, the really beautiful presentation. So I haven't seen all of it, but some of the the scenes I've seen of the chosen, this Christian uh, dramatization of the gospels, Um, Mary Magdalene is portrayed they had to decide what she looked like, what she wore, what her face would have looked like, what it would have been for her to be demon possessed, all these, th- these things. The Bible doesn't tell you any of that. You have to guess that's called historical fiction, but we do know her work. We do know her work and what our work shows us. It gives us a window into seeing her heart as she's anointing our savior for his burial. So the question, how are you known? Let's do some theology first. Your adornment is your self-comportment, how you demonstrate yourself. Who is inside is coming out on who is outside and what you show, how you present yourself to the world. And so I want to read you back into the context. God isn't uh, God. Let me read it. He, He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men. In verse five, we're only in verse nine and 10 here. This is all about the gospel. This is all about how you are part of God's work. So how do you manifest yourself? 
Second, it's nothing new for women to focus on how they present themselves, clothing, cosmetics, jewelry, etc. If you're a woman who says, I don't really focus on those things, I understand what you're saying, but I just want to say in comparison to a man, you probably focus on the things a lot more than a man would. And if you, if you're, if you dispute that, um, you are dealing with uh, men that might be a little bit of an outlier, or you're not thinking about the men and what knuckle draggers we are. I mean, we do take a shower probably because you're around <laughs> more often than we'd like to admit. Anyway, we do laundry because well, women civilize things. They just really do. And I hope you understand. So some of you guys are like, no, we're very clean and fastidious. Generally, no compared to women. I'm just saying there's a difference in general. I'm being very general here. I'll, I'll be a corporal later. I'll be general now. It's not new for women to focus on how they present themselves, clothing, cosmetics, jewelry. Third, Paul teaches a reflective, thoughtful Christian life. He's telling you to dig deeper. Isn't that the, the, the substance of what he's saying? It's not about the outside. It's about who you are inside. So the works that you do with your hands, it looks at the inner person instead of the externals. And, and Peter directly states that in case we we're just so thick, we didn't catch it from Paul. Peter says it's the inner person that, that that's precious in the sight of God. Fourth. So this is an invitation to sink down, to think about who you are and what you're doing here. We get so fixated on the details of life, like what we're going to wear, where we're going to sleep, what are we going to eat? Jesus teaches in Matthew six. Don't worry about those things. You seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Your father knows you need, I'm putting it out of order. Your father knows you need these things. He'll add these things to you. You be on mission for what he wants you to do. And you let him handle the logistics, that, the, the details. And so what happens is not that we completely renounce how we present ourselves, but we think of it in terms of the gospel. If the gospel is portrayed by you wearing a sackcloth and ashes, okay, but probably no. <laughs> One of my favorite stories of, uh, of a, an atheist raised in a communist regime, but I repeat myself, of coming to Christ. It's a man who met the Lord Jesus Christ in Beijing, despite all the efforts of a culture and a world system of Satan bent on not letting these people know the truth of their salvation in Christ, that he died for their sins. Because I'll read it right here. He gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, not all become believers, not all are saved. Most aren't, but he offers eternal life to all. It's an invitation to sink down here that Paul is offering the salvation to all and we think of something less. So my friend in Beijing is uh, invited by a friend, an American, who is teaching English, I think, in a school. Maybe it's his English teacher. Because what happens is Americans will go over there and teach English, and they'll really be Christians, even though they're teaching English. I probably shouldn't say that out loud, right? But it happens. Hundreds of them maybe thousands. One of our great missionary endeavors is to go to these countries where people want to know English and we teach them English and we may tell them something in English about Jesus. But he made a personal relationship, a friendship with this 
this man is an older man. And he took him back to his offices. And uh, the offices, I believe, were Campus Crusade for Christ offices. And it was in a building, an office building, and there were computers. This was back when computers were kind of new and very expensive. And so, you know, well-to-do outfits would have them, but uh, not necessarily everybody in China had one. And, uh, and so he said, there's plants in the building inside, like, like in an expensive place, like house plants. And there's nice furniture. And the building, the office was appointed nicely. And you're like, wait a second. No, no, no. We could sell all that and give the money to the poor. Wait, just listen. He was evangelized because he saw American scientific advancement and, and, and prosperity in the office. That, that, that turned him on. He said, I want a scientific advancement and I want the prosperity that the Americans have. And whatever this guy said over the next two days, he would take because he saw wealth. Now, you don't often hear that as a gospel presentation, but I met this man at Dallas Theological Seminary studying to get his uh, master's of theology. His wife was getting one too. There's more, there's more Chinese Christian women than men. And, and the church in China, it's largely female. And so his, his insight was it was what turned, what got, the way God got my attention was I was really interested in technology and, and scientific things. And, and when someone would mention Christianity to me, I would think it was a monk. And what a monk is to him was a beggar. It was a man in the street that was very poor and slovenly and would give you a blessing if you would give him some money. And they all think of that. That's how they thought of the religious people. And then he met someone that knew Jesus Christ. And now he's going to, I think he's in China now, preaching Jesus Christ to whoever will hear. So I want you to be careful about saying we present ourselves as as slovenly Jesus says no wash your face put on oil like a, a, adorn yourself and then even if you're fasting because you're not trying to be seen by men to be holy it's it's your works fifth are you making a claim to godliness is the next challenging question I want to ask you based on this passage are you ladies making a claim to godliness see as we're teasing your hair well that's the 80s teasing your hair out you know make it all fluffy just teasing. Um, the claim to godliness is the gospel mission. It's the, I'm, I'm seeking to be pleasing to him. And you're saying that and how you comport yourself. Think about that. Think about that. Is your, you know, you could go for, uh, is your dress, think of young women more, maybe not, maybe young at heart women, but some women don't get this, that they think they're dressing to appeal to men especially thinking of single women, that they're trying to catch them one. So how they, how they present themselves is directed toward that. Well, I would say that's a lesser goal than to make a claim to godliness or to being pleasing to God. Are you on mission is the challenge. And I think that is why uh, verse 12. A woman in silence is to receive instruction with all submissiveness. Fundamentalists right there. Some of y'all got just had a coronary. Uh, a woman in silence, he says, is to receive instruction with all submissive. You could say in quietness. It's not the same word as we have silence in First or Second uh, First Corinthians fourteen. It's uh, it means quietly. So, I was told recently that there is a there are these n neural networks in your brain 
that women have like a double portion of this in their brain. And the, the studies on how many words men speak a day versus how many words women speak a day is like a known differential. And it's something like men are driving a moped and women are driving an 18 wheeler or something like this in terms of the difference in how we're made to communicate. And I, I think y'all check me on this, but the most miraculous thing you'll ever accomplish is when you first learn to speak a language, just an interesting evidence. You learn to speak your language because someone talks to you and you have to hear millions of words as an infant for your brain to make the connections for you to start speaking your, your birth language. Much better that a child, a young, very young child is next to a mama who's talking than to a man who's like grunting and like, <clears throat> you okay? I'm just saying we're different. And I think this is why Paul has to say this, why he says this somewhat routinely, that there is a tendency more for men to be quiet and women to jabber. And it's good. You're made that way, but you need to control yourself. And so we're quiet about things. Elsewhere, Paul says, uh, if you have any questions, ask your husband at home. And uh, there's a problem in Corinth and so forth. But the point is that there is a, a men are holding their hands up and praying and women are receiving instruction quietly. And there is a difference in how we're expected to conduct ourselves in the family. Why? Why the difference? Well, I, I want to know. Because this is offensive to my sensibility is the interchangeability of men and women. See, I don't believe that we're interchangeable. The world tells you you are and therefore destroys you and your power. It kills you. It destroys your soul for, you to, for men to try to be women. Women try to be men. In verse 12, furthermore, regarding women to teach, I'm just put it in, in the exact order of the Greek. To teach, I do not permit. In fact, that's the de, the ude, in fact, is a, is a strength, a strong conjunction. In fact, not even to exercise authority over a man. Specific principles, she doesn't teach men. More general principle, not even to exercise authority over men. Now, that, what, in what context? We're talking about the order of the local church. And this is something we follow, we studiously follow. And we don't want women to be destroyed in their design. And we don't want women, men to be destroyed in their design. And the fall of man was when creation order was upside down. When the serpent, the creature man was to rule over, dominated the woman. And then the woman dominated the man. When man submitted to woman instead of to God. And so I'm going to go back to Genesis and before the fall creation order to understand this. If I'm going to fall Paul, follow Paul, but, in, but to be in silence. So she's not going to teach men. In the assembly for Adam was formed first, then Eve, the explanation that Paul gives us is creation order. Now, some say it's because of the fall. Paul will talk about the fall in Genesis three, but here is Genesis one. Here is Genesis one day six and, and, and the, the elaboration in Genesis two, he put man to sleep and he pulled his rib and he for, formed different word for what he did with Adam. He, but he fashioned, he creatively, artistically, beautifully designed something that was different, but suitable as its opposite. Azer Konegdo, the opposite suitable, suitable helpmate. That's what God did when he made woman. And the first word describing woman was a suitable helpmate and Azer Konegdo. And I can go through all the details with, with you on that. It's one of my favorite studies. But the explanation in verse 13 goes back to the principle in verse 12. There's a creation order principle involved and you can't say, well, that's culture. You can't say it's sin. It's no, it's back to what we were designed for. 
I will hide behind the Bible on this. And Adam was not deceived. Now in verse 14, we go to the fall. Adam was not deceived, but the woman, because of being deceived, came to be in transgression. Adam was not deceived, and that should be like a full stop. But the woman, because of being deceived, came to be in transgression. And this is the furthermore on top of man was created first and woman was created second. He gives you two reasons why the teaching and the authority issue. Ladies, I do not believe this makes you less than men with all my heart. I think any teaching that puts women submitting to the authority of her husband as less in value or in personhood than her husband is satanic. It's another attack on God's creation order. The God's good thing he did when he made us for one another. So what he's telling you is that you're not going to get your significance in leadership in the local assembly. Not this way. Creation order doesn't, doesn't permit it. The fall and it's in the problem of deception. I could elaborate on what I think is going on here. Let me suffice it to say that Satan went after the woman because she was the easier target. And that's God's design. She's responsive. She's made as responsive to her husband. There's a difference in how we're designed. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church is a different command from wives submit to your husbands in the Lord. In Ephesians 5, why the difference? Because ladies, if you will submit to your husband who's trying to put on Christ and love you with the love of Christ, then he has a target to send that love toward and you have a response of a reception to it. See, the Christian marriage is supposed to be awesome. It's not supposed to be drudgery. Y'all come see me if it's drudgery. I'll, I'll, I'll make some calls. <laughs> Good Lord, I've had a lot, of, a lot of conversations about that. I didn't change the verse number, but in verse 15, the secret of significance for women, it's not going to be in leadership in the local church, not, at, not in the public like assembly. It's, that's not where your leadership's going to be. It's going to be in something arguably much more important. Verse 15 says, so she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with sound mindedness. We've already heard sound mindedness. We still hear it again. You see what's happening? Woman will be saved through childbearing. This has nothing to do with going to heaven. It, I mean, it's not about your justification and, and all the th regeneration, all that happens when you first believe in Christ. But we see saved and we think that's what it's talking about because we're bringing our culture back to the text. But no, it's in a context. He's talking about you're not teaching the men because of creation order and the fall. But women will be saved from this question of, well, what am I doing? Their significance is in childbearing, child rearing. It's all that's involved in childbearing. That's, a, that's a, a, a one word summary of all that's involved in the rearing of children. I mentioned before the corpus callosum and the ability for women to speak much more than men and the need for infants to hear much more language so that they can learn their language. Y'all have heard it. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. It's an old saw. It's an old adage. I just want you to understand that there's nothing eternal in this life that you're going to touch and pick up. This Bible, this paper is going to burn. The word of God is not going away, but the, the material around us is going. The only thing you're going to touch that's eternal that will never end, I mean, is a human being. And there's nothing more important that we're doing than making disciples of our children. And you can say, well, okay, 
Do you say I can't work outside the home? Nothing in the text says anything about working outside the home. Proverbs 31 says your home becomes a, a business and a manufacturing and a, and a shipping and distribution enterprise because the woman is running a business. So no, not, not what we're talking about. Are you saying that we have to have kids to enjoy significance in life? Not even that. God knows those that do and do not have children. He's saying get involved in that work. If you don't have your own, find some. Invest in them. Build into their lives, build into their souls. There's no one that's a better contact or I'm sorry, a better, a better prospect for the gospel ministry than a child as Jesus taught us. And what a horror that children are growing up all around us that don't know Jesus Christ. And they're learning all the things that they think are so that are being told are so that aren't so. Because there is a God, he is there and he wants us to be about his work. I think that uh, this is a challenge that ladies, we're going to really have to consider the significance of the gospel ministry among children, starting with our own and then all those others that we might encounter. I can't tell you. <laughs> I have a friend that uh, I beat up about crying in the pulpit and the last like three sermons I've gotten, gotten choked up. It's because I'm separated from my family too much. We'll blame it on that. I can't tell you the impact of the lady that taught us in Sunday school in my little church that did the assembly on the piano that we, we sang praises to God and I learned to sing and honor him. And I can't tell you the impact this woman had in my life. She was not my mom, but I was a little kid. She wanted to help with the kids. You just have no idea what you say to a child, how that's going to impact them or how your work in their lives is going to, going to go. And, and, and let's, let's put it back in its initial context, the training and rearing of children, your own children. There's never someone who has a greater impact on their lives than their mom and dad. There's no more vital task that God has given us. So when, when people read this and they, you know, I read through first Timothy and I fall off my horse, just like you do. She'll be saved through childbearing. What in the world? Well, you read it in context. You have to understand the whole passage as I've tried to exposit it for you today. It's talking about significance in Christian leadership. And that's where yours lives. Women. If you don't do it, it's not being done. Dads that, have, that, that they lose their wives and they have the kids and they have to figure this out. Imagine the challenge of having little kids and no wife to disciple these kids. Our compassion has to extend to them. We have to church family them. We have to come alongside them and, and we need some moms to help in such a case. There's no more important task that we do if we're thinking God's thoughts after him and looking what he's given us. When people think about what's most important in their lives, and they have children, the children are usually at the top of the list. It's not their career. I don't want to be cliche and Christian right and talk about focus on the family and all that, but it, it, it is true that there's nothing more eternal, more significant that you're going to do than rear your children. And if you don't have children, then it's happening all around you and it's really significant work and maybe you could be part of it. God isn't willing that any should perish. God forbid that any of our children should perish. Today, we're going to sing God's praises. We are going to lift him up in praise and sing holy to him. 
and not just about our salvation and amazing grace, but uh, about who He is. We're going to sing Son of God on the inside uh, cover of your hymnal. Um, if we have hymnals, are the hymnals out? Okay, yep. And we're going to sing, uh, we sing the greatness of our God, and I forget what number, I think it's like 338 or something. And we're going to sing How Great Thou Art, and open and close with the same song, hymn number two. So come on up, Mike, and lead us in song.